Welcome to the Academy Exchange, HIV Today and Tomorrow. In this podcast, we discuss the latest advances in HIV prevention, care, and treatment, as well as examine the societal and systemic issues facing people with HIV. Thank you for joining us. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode two of this new podcast we're calling the Academy Exchange, HIV in 2022 and Beyond, hosted by my organization, the American Academy of HIV Medicine. Uh, once again, my name is Bruce Packett, and I'm the executive director of the Academy, and I'll be guiding our listenership through what's basically an interview or a series of probing questions from some of our key members who uh, serve as faculty for our medical education programming and are otherwise affiliated with the organization. Um, the point of the podcast, as I mentioned in our opening episode, is really to take this great clinical education content and repurpose it in a conversation for a wider audience. So with that in mind, we're very lucky today to have Dr. Carly Floyd with us. And Carly Floyd is a clinical pharmacist at Southwest Care Center, uh, SCC, and the clinical director at the University of New Mexico AIDS Education and Training Center. So that's the UNMAATC. She attended the University of New Mexico College of Pharmacy in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Upon graduation, she completed her PGY1 residency in El Paso, Texas, and at the UTEP AT Austin Community Pharmacy Residency Program with a focus in HIV primary care. In 2012, she returned to her home in New Mexico and eventually became the pharmacy manager for the Southwest Care Center location in Albuquerque and obtained her certification in HIV. She transitioned to her current role of a clinical pharmacist educator and provider of HIV treatment prevention, hepatitis C, transgender medicine, diabetes, and smoking cessation. Carly was awarded the New Mexico Pharmacist Association Distinguished Pharmacist of the Year Award in 2018. At the end of 2019, she accepted an additional role as a clinical director with the UNMATC to continue educating New Mexico and El Paso, Texas communities to help end the HIV epidemic. So Dr. Floyd did a talk for our members and other clinicians about getting pre-exposure prophylaxis or PrEP uh, and post-exposure prophylaxis or PEP to some of the harder to reach populations in the country. And she is self-admittedly very passionate about PrEP access and talking about PrEP with her clients and talking to other providers about doing the same. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Floyd. Thank you so much for having me today, Bruce. Absolutely. Uh, I just wanna back up and say, we're not going to assume a lot of medical or, or scientific or virologic knowledge of HIV as a disease state. So let's start by backing up and just defining our terms. So. PrEP or pre-exposure prophylaxis has been a huge development in the fight against HIV over the last decade. And I'm hoping that you can start uh, and tell us what pre-exposure prophylaxis is and how it differs from post-exposure prophylaxis or PEP. And then maybe tell us how PrEP originated or how it came into clinical use for HIV prevention and ultimately how it works. I think if I'm not mistaken, this is right around the 10 year anniversary of the Food and Drug Administration approving the first oral PrEP medication for HIV prevention. So maybe this is a good time to reflect on those early days of development. I'll stop there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, we're right at the 10 year uh, anniversary. It was approved in 2012, it was the first um, oral PrEP medication that we had. So like you said, pre-exposure prophylaxis. I like to tell people when I'm talking to patients, clients, that I, I you know, make it similar to, say that it's similar to birth control, right? We take women and people who are of childbearing potential take a daily pill sometimes um, to prevent pregnancy. And so it's very similar. It's a 
uh, an oral pill. This is what was approved initially. And then since then, over the last 10 years, we've um, had oral, two oral agents and even a generic, and then most recently an injectable. Um, and so I think your question was, let's talk about, about what it is in general and how does it work, correct? That's right, yeah. Okay, so, so in general, what, what happens is that these medications, um, usually either two medications and one pill or one active medication and an injection, work to prevent HIV in people who might be exposed to HIV. Now, they may not know that they're going to be exposed, but they think that they could be exposed. And that would be exposure through blood, sexual uh, exposure, or injection. So if somebody is potentially sharing a needle or um, you know any kind of injection equipment, that is another exposure. And so going on these medications uh, is, is the way that we actually can prevent that person from acquiring HIV. Right, great for that. Thanks for that explanation. Um, I wanna kind of shift here um, and move over to discussing the National Strategic Plan, mm -hmm. because obviously PrEP and prevention is a big part of that hope to end HIV in the US by 2030, which is what the, the strategic plan lays out. You know, and many of us working in HIV are very familiar with, you know, what we call NBC, where everything has acronyms, the NHAS, or the <laughs> National HIV AIDS Strategic Plan for ending the HIV epidemic in the U.S. So for our listeners who uh, may not be aware of the details of the national plan to eradicate HIV or more likely may not even know it exists, can you share a brief overview of sort of the general pillars of the plan and where it comes from, who devised it? And I'm hoping you can also do kind of a brief overview of what part HIV prevention specifically plays in the ending the epidemic plan. Yeah, yeah. So we just recently passed 40 years of um, having HIV and AIDS in in our country um, and being aware of right. it. So you know we're 40 years in, and we don't have um, we haven't ended it, right? We were hoping to have done this, and so. Um, the the HIV National Strategic Plan is something um, that's coming from the federal government um, where we're trying to focus on, like you said, these pillars. So these four kind of key things to really stop having new diagnoses of, of HIV. We really want to be done with HIV across our country and in the world if we're able to. And this is specific, you know, the ending the HIV epidemic um, I'm specifically referring to in the United States. Right. Um, so the first pillar is diagnosing people with HIV as early as possible. And so that means increasing testing, um, having people be screened routinely, not just putting it for, you know, people we think might have it, but just part of routine care. You get an HIV screen. When was your last HIV screen? And then once somebody is, we determine that they're positive, we, we have it as soon as they, what we call seroconvert or where their blood turns to have um, the HIV antibody. So that's the first pillar. Mm -hmm. The second pillar is treating people. So you get the people who are diagnosed with HIV, hopefully as soon as possible within their diagnose, uh, within the HIV um, timeline, and then we're going to treat them. And we want to treat them rapidly, meaning uh, usually same day, but generally within the first two weeks of diagnosis, so that we can get their virus to become completely undetectable in their blood. Um, we call that viral suppression, and that is a way to prevent the spread to other people. 
the third pillar and the pillar that we're kind of focusing on the most is the prevention pillar. And so this is really getting people on pre-exposure prophylaxis, syringe service programs, but it also includes post-exposure prophylaxis. And so post-exposure prophylaxis is kind of more of an emergency um, where within a few days, 72 hours is our rule, of an exposure, a potential exposure to HIV, uh, we can put somebody on a regimen to decrease that, again, that seroconversion where their their blood goes from antibody negative to antibody positive. Um, and so that's another piece that's in there in that prevention pillar. And then the fourth pillar is really responding to potential HIV outbreaks, um, getting prevention and treatment services out to people who need them. And so this is kind of the strategic plan, and those are the pillars that you mentioned. Um, and I think one of the, the best things that most people can do is that prevention piece, right? And also diagnosing because a screening test is very easy to do, but it's so easy for us to start getting prevention out there and making right. it widely available um, and uh, available to all people, right? Not just in, um, you know, certain areas, but anyone can get it. And so that's what I, you know, hope to help people will feel really, really comfortable with by the end of this talk. Yeah, that's great. So just digging a little bit into the differences, again, between PrEP and PEP. Uh, PrEP is sort of commonly known as something where you are uh, taking a, a one pill once a day or an injection every month or two, sort of in perpetuity, but the same is not true of PEP. This is for a finite, finite amount of time. Can you sort of um, uh, hash that out for us? Yeah, yeah. So PEP is something that um, you do for a month. Um, so for example, if somebody comes into my clinic and they tell me, hey, you know, it's Monday morning, on Saturday night, they uh, were at a party and something happened. They woke up and there was maybe sexual assault or um, some sort of questionable um, thing that happened. And they're really concerned about potentially getting sexually transmitted infections, HIV, any of the things that could be transmitted sexually or by blood. Um, they can come in and we can give them a month's worth technically for the guidelines, it's 28 days, but about a month of right. a fully active HIV regimen, because we know that that has significantly decreased risk in people if it started within 72 hours. And the reason for that is the virus, if the person was exposed to the HIV, to the human immunodeficiency virus, it takes about 72 hours to get that widespread dissemination or just getting throughout all the body, getting into the organs and beyond just that kind of initial exposure. And right. so if we can give somebody a fully active HIV treatment regimen, we can actually prevent that full dissemination through the body, prevent the antibody from converting over from negative to positive. And as long as there's no continuing exposure for that month, then that person, after a month goes by, they test them again, they should be considered to be fine from that exposure. And part of the reason why we do just one month is because once they've been on it for a long period of time, if that virus isn't replicating and there's no other exposure, there's no need to go on it longer. Um, but we could talk about prevention after that, like continued daily prevention or um, uh, injectable prevention as well. Yeah, it seems like a good entry point to sort of talk about a transition potentially from PEP to PrEP uh, in that yeah. instance. Um, and I wanna get into some of those risk factors and conversations that lead to a PrEP prescription uh, in a moment. Um, but you alluded to, and so did I actually, the new injectable formulation 
of PrEP, which is mm -hmm. something we focused on in the first Academy Exchange podcast, specifically do treatment and prevention modalities. Um, how is this different than your typical traditional PrEP using oral medications or pills? Yeah, it's a really exciting new area for preventing, um, even treating, but especially for preventing um, HIV. And so one of the differences, I think, is just in the way that it's formulated, right? So we're giving somebody this very potent, good prevention option, not in an oral pill that has to be taken every 24 hours, but in an injection that needs to be given. Initially, you do a month apart and then you go two months. Um, so what's really cool about that is that people don't have to remember to take a pill every day. I'm a pharmacist. I struggle to remember my daily medications. So right. I think it's so cool that we can say, hey, come in and get an injection. And for the next two months, we feel pretty comfortable because this has really good data that you're not going to get HIV. Obviously, it's not 100%, but it's going to be better than you remembering to take a pill every day and forgetting it maybe three or four days out of the week, which is where it's going to significantly decrease prevent uh, protection from HIV for the oral medication. So it's really great. Um, it's been something we've been anticipating for quite some time as we've been seeing the studies um, come out. Uh, COVID did kind of delay its release, um, but it's finally here and it's really a great um, option um, for, for people wanting to prevent HIV. Yeah, it really is an exciting new uh, prevention modality in addition to being an exciting new treatment uh, modality as well. Um, I want to move into the communication side of things, and I want to pose kind of two different scenarios. Um, the first is when a patient or client specifically comes into a clinic, asks their, their prescriber, their healthcare provider, their clinical pharmacist about PrEP specifically. At that point, what kinds of questions would that provider ask to determine if this patient is in fact, or this client is in fact an appropriate candidate for PrEP? So I guess a different way of looking at this question might be, we start to think about quote unquote risky sex for men, women, and transgender clients or injection drug use and all the other things you mentioned being the risk factors to make someone a good candidate for starting PrEP, you might think that this applies to a large proportion of your patient population. So what are those key questions that you might ask and what kind of response are you looking for to generate that prescription? Yeah, this is a great question. Um, I think it's really interesting to talk about too, because we used to be really particular about who actually qualifies for PrEP, where it was like, you know, we really needed to show a certain risk. And I remember at one point um, years ago where we would kind of like calculate their risk, right? For is this something that they should, should go on? Um, we would ask questions about the number of, of sexual partners, um, risk factors that they may have, prior sexual transmitted history, a lot of questions. And all are really important questions as a clinician. Um, however, there can be some um, contribution or furthering of, of sigma around, stigma around sex, especially when we're quantifying number of partners. And so this is something that's kind of kind of going away, although you absolutely could ask, you know, what lifetime when you're thinking about the number of partners that you've had, what's your lifetime number of partners, you know, and if somebody says one, that's very different than somebody who says 100 or or more, you know, and and we have lots of different numbers in between, but really trying to remove the stigma around that, um, right, being sexually healthy is super important for all people. Um, maybe just asking about um, the different 
types of behavior somebody engages in. And what's really cool is that the CDC guidelines um, for PrEP, which if, if the listeners aren't familiar with, they are available online free and they were just recently updated in December 2021. So fresh, hot off the press, um, but they now recommend to offer it to everyone. It didn't used to be like that. And now you pretty much can go in there and it's either give them prep or consider prep and offer it basically to all people. So my perspective is that everyone is a candidate unless proven otherwise. So um, really, I think the big thing is like, let's talk about those types of behaviors you might be engaging in and really talking about what's a high risk behavior and what's not a high risk behavior. And so when we kind of look at this, um, there are ways of, of stratifying what's the highest risk, what's a lower risk, um, you know, what's the lowest risk. Um, obviously, if we think about blood transfusions prior to us being able to test, that's gonna be the highest risk. Like nine out of 10 people are gonna get HIV uh, that way. So thankfully uh, we screen now and so it's not an issue, um, but that's gonna be our highest. But when we're thinking about things that might be uh, more common for people, right? Condomless sex is a big thing, right? And then there's right. different stratification between the types of sex that people are having. And this is where I think as healthcare providers, um, we've done, we, we're not doing great here. We're kind of afraid to talk about sex. We uh, don't get good training on it. Um, there's lots of um, research out there that shows that uh, there might be some training, but it's not very great. It's not adequate. And as we get out into practice, we start to lower prioritize taking a sexual history. Um, so th these are really it is really important, but it's very hard to do. And so you have to start talking about, well, what kind of sex are you having? And really removing the stigma around that. So condomless receptive anal sex. Um, you can hear this being called I bottom, um, being the, the receptive partner, they'll say bottom. But this is not just for gay men. I think that this is a big stigma that, oh, well, only gay men have receptive anal sex. And I think it's really important to remember that all types of people have anal sex. If you have an anus, you can use it for sex, right? So um, it's really important to normalize that and ask everybody, not just, oh, well, I know that this person is gay or trans or whatever, so they might engage in anal sex. No, just ask people, make it normal. Um, talking about that um, and then talking about, you know, maybe they're the insertive partner. Um, and so th there is a risk there lower than being the bottom or the receptive partner. And then asking about, have you ever shared injection needles or supplies? Um, maybe that you've shared cookers or cottons or any of the things that go um, with uh, preparing injection um, of substances, right? Those, those things can uh, pass on um, HIV. Generally, we're more concerned about hep C with that because it lives on surfaces much longer than HIV, but we want to know about that. And then the the last thing I think that's really important to think about is if somebody has sexual partners who are HIV positive, who are either not taking HIV medication, um, so then their virus is, is replicating in their blood, or somebody who is on HIV medication but has a detectable viral load, meaning either they're not taking their medication daily as they're supposed to, or if they're, they've their virus is somewhat resistant to their medications and they have replicating virus in their blood. So those those categories, for the most part, are going to be people who would be considered high risk. And I will even say when we talk about sex, even oral sex can be a risk, very much lower when we're comparing it to all of the things. But that is a risk. And so what I like to do is sit down with people and say, 
hey, here are your risks. There's a really great chart that I'll um, send to you, Bruce, uh, the link so you can put it in the show notes for the podcast. Um, mm -hmm. It's from 2015, but it, it, the data is still the same. It's really great. And it talks about like your odds of getting HIV. Um, so one in, you know, 200 and whatever, one in 2000, basically negligible. And I let people look at that and say, okay, I engage in these types of behaviors and I'm, you know, we're normalizing it, right? We're not stigmatizing it. And then they can say, I'm comfortable with these risks or I'm not. They ask me, generally, I'll say, yeah, you know, it might be a good thing for you. But we also want to think about, you know, what would the side effects of the medication be? So if we give somebody oral prep and they already have, you know, a predisposition to having some of the side effects, then we, it might be more risky to give them the prep than the HIV. But if they're really wanting prep, I try to give them prep because that is, that is a really important part of ending the HIV epidemic. We need to prevent transmission. And some people, you know, really feel that their risks are low. And we know um, in, in the studies and the data that's out there that people who actually do end up getting HIV really think that their risks are low. And so they might opt not to. So there's also a piece of education as well of talking about how, well, this is a high risk behavior. And I would really encourage you to be on something like PrEP to prevent, especially if you're not um, using condoms, which are another way to um, prevent STIs and, and HIV. But so lots of lots of things to talk about right in a visit. And we're in a, a world where uh, we have very little time. But if you have the time and are able to just having a brief three to five minute conversation without going into all the details of, oh, OK, you're here for you want prep. All right. Well, let's let's look at this chart here really quickly and see, OK, point to the, the different types of sex that you engage in or practices or whatever. And let's look at your risks. And yeah, it looks like you would be a good candidate. Let's talk about the medication. Yeah, those are all really great points. And, and what a comprehensive answer. Um, there's a lot to unpack there, I think. Um, you <laughs> did touch on possible side effects or maybe even drug interactions or other medication considerations that a, pa a patient or client should discuss or think about before starting PrEP. And I have to say, whenever I'm out in the world, just kind of talking about PrEP for people who don't really know about it, who may think it's, you know, a, a, a pretty good idea. Their, their first question is, well, what are the side effects of being on that long term? Do we know that yet? Um, do we know if I'm on this other medication that interacts with it? What, you know, what does it mean? I've heard that, you know, bone density decreases when you take PrEP. What would you say in, in those kinds of situations regarding side effects? Yeah. Yeah. I know side effects for anything you put in your body, right? There are always side effects. If it doesn't naturally come in your body, and even if it does, you can have a side effect when you inject it or you take it by mouth, right? That is a, a very normal thing. Um, the nice thing about PrEP is overall, it is very well tolerated. So let's look at oral PrEP first. When we have a couple options and even a generic option that's available. Generally speaking, side effects from taking it are going to be kind of GI, um, nausea, vomiting, maybe some diarrhea, some gas, and usually those are early on. Um, so when somebody starts PrEP, they might start noticing those side effects, but then it tends to go away. Um, one of the options for oral uh, PrEP, uh, Truvada or the generic, um, it, it has a type of tenofovir in it, which is one of the active ingredients that is more prone to causing problems with bones and kidneys. So like you mentioned, that decreasing bone mineral density. So if somebody has um, a history of fractures, um, we might be more concerned about using that particular medication 
for somebody or um, somebody who might have decreased kidney function, we might want to avoid the one um, that can affect the kidneys more um, negatively. The other oral option tends to be safer overall on bones and kidneys and have has less nausea, vomiting, GI side effects, but still can have that happen. So overall, really safe. Um, but one thing to know about these medications is, and this is kind of a tangent, but I'll, I promise I'll bring it back to injectable prep, is that if you put somebody on oral prep, you need to know if they have hepatitis B. And the reason for that is that the medication, one of the medications in oral prep, there's two medications in each pill, um, tenofovir is active in treating hepatitis B. So if you give somebody prep and you don't know if they have hepatitis B, but they have it, what's gonna happen is great. It's gonna treat the virus in their blood, which is really great. Hepatitis B is a chronic bloodborne illness. Um, so we give them a medication that will suppress their virus, which is awesome. The problem with that is, and this is something we have to know about before they start, is that if they start it, and then maybe down the road, let's say this person was not in a monogamous relationship, but now they're in a monogamous relationship, their risks are, are zero, they feel comfortable stopping PrEP, but they have hepatitis B, what's going to happen is that virus in their blood of hepatitis B is going to flare up and they're going to be put at risk for what's called fulminant hepatitis and potentially could kill this person. So that is a really big concern. Um, so something we check for always um, is hepatitis B. It's not necessarily a side effect of the med, it's a very good benefit, but we have to know that up front and have that conversation if somebody does have hepatitis B, because then we want them to stay on this medication lifelong, or at least go get um, a consult for a different treatment um, that they could go on as well if they opt not to be on prep okay so that's oral <laughs> oral prep then right. in injectable prep considerations really if we're talking about the medication specifically we're really going to be thinking about injection site reactions because it's injected um, and we're going to be uh, thinking about headaches so the injectable prep is a category of medication for hiv that we've had for a while while it is the newest uh prevention medication uh it's not this category of meds has have been around for some time so they're not totally new and we know um long term uh that that they're really powerful good medications we don't have long-term studies specifically for prep and what may happen but um we know that with the way it's metabolized is not the same as it would be for the oral prep options to affect the bones and kidneys so that's kind of a bonus of it um and I don't know, I think I might have skipped over, but one of the common side effects of injectable prep is a headache. So some people might notice a headache when they're on it. Most people for this injection feel the, the side effects uh, at the time when they get it. They have soreness where they get the injection and then it goes away. Sure. Overall, though, injections are really well tolerated for prep. There were a couple big studies that were done. Um, one only had about a 2.2 discontinuation, 2.2% discontinuation rate, meaning most people chose to stay on it even if they had side effects. And then in the other one, um, there was there were um, almost 3,300 participants in the second one, and they had no discontinuations due to injection site reactions. So depending on how people in to can tolerate it, it may be a really great option for them. However, I would say a side effect or something we should consider is cost um, because these aren't covered as widely the injectable as oral prep is at this point 
So um, definitely a consideration uh, that's not really specific to the med and the person's body, but something to think about because that can really impact access for sure. Absolutely. And I want to kind of wade into that murky sort of <laughs> waters of access um, because it's such an important consideration when you're talking about the dispensation of PrEP. So we've, co- we've covered the clinical side of things, right? You've talked to the patient. Um, you've talked about PrEP. You've determined that they're a good candidate. Uh, they've decided to go on PrEP. They agree that this is a good choice for them. Um, what does it look like for that patient to then actually access PrEP? And I know there's probably, in fact, it's not probably, I know there is definitely a gulf of difference right now between, for example, generic Truvada and injectable PrEP, uh, it being the first year. However exciting the data is on it, uh, the, access, the access points are still uh, pretty difficult with regard to injectable mm-hmm. PrEP. But I wonder if you can talk about that process from uh, written prescription to uh, the patient actually accessing that medication and sustaining that medication. Yeah, totally. I'd like to start with the oral prep because that's the one we have more experience with um, and kind of uh, better access, I would say, at this point. But so what happens is the patient comes in, we determine they're good, a prescription is sent. Um, Usually that's sent to uh, wherever the patient's pharmacy is. Sometimes that's an in-house pharmacy. In my situation here at Southwest Care Center where I work, we have an in-house pharmacy. We're really fortunate. They can walk down the hall, pick it up and walk out. Um, But so the prescription is going to get sent. And then depending on their insurance, there are going to be some things that happen. So first thing is maybe the brand that was sent in isn't covered on their insurance. So there are two brands and then there's the generic. Um, So if one brand is sent in that doesn't have a generic, it might need a, a prescription change. So if there's you know, a pharmacy maybe down the road that doesn't have access to the provider very easily that can delay things a little bit. Um, But there's also, it could require a prior authorization. Most plans are pretty good. They'll cover one or the other without a prior authorization, but there are times where we're seeing prior authorizations. It shouldn't be like that because it's supposed to be covered um, across the board for everybody, but occasionally we do see that. Generally, it's just for a specific brand. Um, so one thing I will say here is just for the even like the very first part is it's really important to have dedicated team members if you're able um, to if you're prescribing a lot of prep or want to prescribe a lot of prep. Um, there are people um, peer navigators or prep navigators um, who are able to assist where you know if you go to the pharmacy and they tell you it's um, not covered and they're sending a request to the doctor or the prescriber for a change maybe that per- that patient could call that person directly and then they could facilitate that change faster as opposed to it sitting in a long line of, of faxes to the provider uh, where it just sits for a few days. Um, in my clinic, we do have a prep navigator, which is uh, immensely helpful. Um, and we also are fortunate to have tech pharmacy technicians who are prior authorization specialists who have access to the medical records and help with the prior authorization process. And so that really helps get prep out there. That's not always the case. Um, it's just important to know, okay, if this isn't covered, what tell the patient what to do next and not just to wait because that can really slow down the process. Right, right. Um, the other thing that I would say with that is making sure that in wherever you are, like in my state, I know what Medicaid covers, which plans. I know what most of my primary um, commercial plans that I tend to see cover and prefer. Um, So for example, I know that my Medicaid plans are going to be okay with Descovy, but one particular insurance that's coming to mind, United Healthcare is going to be really particular with generic Truvada. And so kind of having that list really readily available, you see someone, you determine that they're 
a candidate, look at the list if you have their insurance on there and prescribe that med, that will speed it up really, really well. The other piece that can really slow things down is the copay. Generally, people should not have copays. You know, that's what it's supposed to be across our country, um, as it is a grade A recommendation for oral prep. Um, but that's not exactly what we're seeing in practice. We still see copays. So, if you're a prescriber and you're sending them out to a pharmacy down the street, have them walk out with a copay card. This can be something you get directly from the manufacturer. You can go online and they can sign up for it before they leave your office. Super easy. They print it and they walk in and they hand it to the pharmacy and say, please put this on. And that will bring their copays down to zero. Um, these copay cards are, I think, up to $7,500 annually in copay assistance, which is amazing. Um, we have our prep navigator who helps patients leave with those when they need them. And then um, our internal pharmacy is actually very great at uh, putting those copay cards on for patients so that it's a very, very smooth process. Um, so that's for oral prep insured patients. Actually, I skipped Medicare. Let me add in Medicare there. Medicare can be tricky. Um, they'll get the prescription sent out. Um, and depending on where they fall in you know, the donut hole, they might have a higher cost of medication. And so this can be challenging. Sometimes we're able to use generic Truvada um, for these people with Medicare. But one of the challenging things is, is as we age and we go on Medicare, our kidneys slow down. And so we might not be able to use generic Truvada, which is very cheap across the board. I think for the most part, you can get it for like 20 bucks, 20 to 30 bucks, depending on where you go. Um, but it, it, it's pretty cheap uh, across the board. And so if that's not an option, really you have to look into getting brand name of, of Descovy and may need to look into Medicare Part D medication foundations. And there's a couple mm -hmm. and Bruce, I'll be happy to share those links so we can put in the, the show notes. But That'd be great, um, <laughs> yeah, that's a key part for people with Medicare. And I, I, I did failed to mention this earlier, but it's really important that older people have sex too. <laughs> and we really need to remember that because um, I have in my clinic here, I, I can think of a really good percentage of my, my population are 75 and up and they're very sexually active. And so we Absolutely. need to not have that um, age stigma as well or ageism. Okay. And last thing for oral prep I want to say is the um, uninsured. So if somebody is uninsured, they can still get prep. You know, we can always look at um, doing generic generally at a federally qualified health center where you can get it pretty cheap. Um, or you can apply them for a program called the Advancing Access uh, Program, which is where they, um, depending on their income, they'll qualify and get medication through the program. Generally, I've seen approvals from three months to six months to up to a year of being able to get the medication covered. If that doesn't work, there are state prep programs um, that may be available in um, various areas. And then there's also the readysetprep.hiv.gov. That's a great way to try to find something for somebody for oral prep. So all this is for oral prep. <laughs> and just and to clarify and for see, our listeners, yeah. I'm sorry, just to clarify for our listeners, the Advancing Access Program, um, does that include Descovy or is that just for generic Truvada? Both Descovy and Truvada. So Advancing Access is actually um, a program through Gilead. Gilead right. is the company that makes Descovy and Truvada. So it actually 
doesn't even cover the generics. Um, it's just the brand names. And so generally, if you're going to put somebody on advancing access, you can easily go with Descovy, the smaller pill with fewer side effects, um, because it will get covered. You don't have to go with Truvada, but it will cover Truvada if needed. Uh, if there's a reason somebody doesn't tolerate Descovy um, through that, and that's through the, the drug manufacturer. Great. Well, thanks for that explanation. And um, obviously, we've touched on some of those access barriers with things like prior authorization, patient co-pays. But here's where I think the conversation gets interesting because when we look at the national estimates that say that you know nationwide, only about a quarter of the US population who are considered to be at risk of HIV infections are actually receiving PrEP. So beyond the things you've already mentioned, um, what, what are in your experience the specific factors that are keeping this percentage so low? Um, uh, we, again, we touched on some of the provider communication aspects of this question, taking a robust, a robust non-stigmatizing sexual history, uh, for example. But thinking more broadly, um, what changes to our healthcare system would help increase this percentage? And then, sorry to make a compound question, but I guess the sub-question <laughs> is, what disparities do we observe when we look at PrEP coverage overall? So here I'm talking about your usual disparities in the healthcare space, right? Looking mm -hmm. at social determinants of health, minority and disenfranchised communities, and so on. What are those disparities you see and how might, how might they be addressed in terms of PrEP access? Yeah. Yeah. So there are so many factors, I think, that are keeping the percentage of PrEP, um, getting PrEP out to the people who actually need it, um, who are at risk. Um, I think there's a lot of changes to our healthcare system that we need um, to help with this. But um, when you look at it, like the data that there is uh, for this is from 2019. It's the most recent that I've seen. There may be right. some 2020 mm -hmm. coming out. I haven't seen it yet. But most states are, aren't doing great. Some states are doing better than others, but no state is getting above 50 percent of people getting prepped to 50% or more of people who are at risk of HIV. No state is, is above that. Um, so we're, some are doing better than others. Some have a lot of work to do, but I think there's, you know, like we, you mentioned the sexual health history training, we need to be better trained. I, when I think about it and I go back to some of the providers that I've had over my lifetime, there, I mean, it's very infrequent that people ask me about sex and usually, or my risk factors, right, injecting, um, usually it's are you sexually active yes or no and then we move on right and so that is a problem we need to be talking about this because we know if somebody's sexually active they're at risk for depending on you know if they are able to um, bear a child or but they may be able to be a parent of a child right they may um, be at risk for a sexually transmitted infection hiv um, hepatitis B is bloodborne. So so many different things. And there's so much packed into that. And we're just kind of glossing over that. Right. Right. Exactly. I, yeah. I think that's a big problem. And I really think we need to be talking more about sex. Um, there are some, you know, the, I think it's the American Sexual Health Association, ASHA, you know, they really talk about what does it mean to be sexually healthy. And there's a lot of stuff that's in there, but where there's no stigma, you're having open conversations, you feel comfortable, you can in, have pleasure within sex, as opposed to just making it like, oh, well, are you having problems, right? Like, well, we should be talking about it in a much better way. So removing a lot of that, Absolutely. I think is really big, but that is a that is a big thing to change. And that's just one thing, right? Um, I also think I've found that people, some healthcare providers, though this is um, happening less and less often, at least in my experience, is that some people see Truvada, Descovy, generic Truvada, and they think HIV treatment, 
right? And so we have to change that. That Just because you see those meds that look like they could be in HIV treatment and they are used in HIV treatment, doesn't necessarily mean that's what it is. And so when somebody comes in, we have to be staying up to date on the information. And so that's one of the big things I'm passionate about is making sure people know what is PrEP to begin with. And you can prescribe it. You don't need to go to a, a specialist to do it. You, The guidelines have really good algorithms and ways to do it. Yeah, there are nuances, but we need to understand it better. And instead of waiting for patients to ask us, we should be asking them, you know, have you ever been on PrEP? Do you need PrEP? Let's talk about it. Um, so I think that's really important. And then the other part of why the, I think it's really low is, so when we look at the, the data from 2019, you see that, um, and I can't remember, 63% or so of people who are white um, are accessing PrEP. But when you look at Latinx, Black, and just when you compare those three um, races, we're seeing huge disparities there. And is it because maybe our education is targeting, uh, you know, only certain um, ethnicities or races? Uh, is it because certain people have access to insurance or healthcare in general, right? And so we have so many disparities in healthcare just across the board, but we are clearly seeing that in PrEP uptake. We need to be focusing on hardly reached populations. Not that they're hard to reach. Um, they're, they're there. We can reach them. They're just hardly reached. Right. Um, and that's, again, where I think it's so important to get out there and educate and, you know, target people who we know are at risk, but then making sure that we're hitting Black people, Latinx people, Asian people, um, you know, all people, not just certain areas where people might have better access to health care um, or have better insurance or whatever the case may be. We need to figure out ways to reach people. And so I think that there's there's so much within that. I could probably talk about it for forever, but we have a lot of work to do there. Um, but I think one other thing, and this is starting to show more is, and I didn't talk about this with your previous question, but with injectable PrEP, um, that is such a great medication. We're seeing even better reduction in HIV acquisition with these injectable PrEP, injectable prevention medications, but it is so hard to get and I work in a specialty clinic that deals with this and we're having a hard time doing it. And so we have a lot of problems in our healthcare system with things um, like where you have to go through a specific specialty pharmacy, right? And they call that white bagging where it, you can't just go to any pharmacy. You have to work with this specific one and then they might ship it and it may not make it or, you know, it's so cumbersome mm -hmm. in all the administrative procedures, just trying to figure out if it's even covered, right? We need to be doing better as as a healthcare system across the board in, in, in making this available to all. And I think that's a huge problem. Um, and we're finding out now too with injectable PrEP, and this is one of the big struggles that we're having here, even as one of the bigger HIV and prevention, treatment and prevention providers in my state, um, we're having a hard time getting paid for it. Um, and that doesn't make sense. If we're buying this medication and getting it out to people, that's great. But if it puts organizations out thousands of dollars every single injection, that's not sustainable. And those places are going to close. And so we have to do better. And so I think part of that has to do with just the way like we have um, kind of specialty medications set up. And I, you know, again, I could probably talk about that for a long time, but also just kind of limiting how we access it, I think that we're doing a disservice um, to everybody by doing that. So yeah, that's a really complicated answer, but a lot of really where I, I fall and, and how I think we could 
we could do better um, as a country and states. Yeah, states so some many, states are good. <laughs> right. Yeah. Mine is not doing great yet. Just so many important issues in there, and and it's really important that we think through all of them because there's not one magic bullet or one simple answer to yeah. answer all these disparity and access issues. There yeah. really is a complicated nexus of things happening, um, and I want to kind of pivot that into a question about you know, what, what could we as advocates, or if there's a call to action for our listeners, for example, who may also be, you know, similarly motivated by their passions to see HIV eradicated in their communities, um, what would be their call to action to try to encourage policymakers and lawmakers to, you know, adopt policies to increase PrEP and other prevention uptake? I mean, what are some of the key, I, I guess you could call them political issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I've been seeing a lot more lately um, from the pharmacy perspective of trying to remove, like I said, white bagging, which is really forcing people to use a specific pharmacy to access medication. And so what's happening is that um, pharmacy benefits and pharmacy benefit manager are saying, well, we have our own specialty pharmacy and that's the only place that you can access this medication. And it's usually mail order. And there's so many issues with that Uh, delays in getting medication, uh, lost medication, Uh, not shipping it out at all. I mean, I've had so many problems. We deal with this for so many variety of specialty meds. And so I've been seeing advocacy work being done um, in various states, I think two in the last week, who have just put into place legislation, laws um, that were approved that will eliminate in that state white bagging. Meaning if I need to go get my prep and it's better for me to use my local pharmacy that I'm comfortable with and they can get it. I should be able to go there and get it. I shouldn't be told where I have to go because what's happening is medications are going to a pharmacy that insurance and payers and they own. And so they're getting all of this. um, They're keeping the money in house and it's it's a big money game. And, And for me, that's a problem, right? We're, it's supposed mm-hmm. to be about access, not about who gets all the money. And of course, you know, there's so much packed into that politically, right? Of, you know, people are, who have a lot of money are making a lot more money from that. Um, but I think if we're really trying to get it out there, we really have to push some of those laws and say people have a right to choose what pharmacy for whatever med. Um, the white bagging laws is what I've um, heard them, um, you know, uh, right to choose. We had, I know in New Mexico, we've had those go up multiple years in a row, I'm, I can't tell you the number, maybe five, six, seven, um, and they get shot down every year, get tabled because, you know, people with the money mm-hmm. don't want that because right. that's less money for them, but it's decreasing access. And so if we're really trying to end the HIV epidemic, we have to change those things. And um, really, I think that's where we can we can advocate. And that's, you know, my perspective as a pharmacist, I'm sure there's plenty of other ways that we can be involved. Um, in change, but I think that's one big one. Yeah, sure. Again, all really important points. Um, and it can feel a little daunting, right? I mean, oh, I, yeah. I always try to end these podcasts on a positive note. It's my usual MO, you know, but it's, I think it's hard to do when you're talking about the policies and politics around healthcare access in this country in general, um, you know, especially for poor, underserved and uninsured populations. So maybe we can end by trying to delve into something that um, the Division of HIV Prevention at CDC is now calling HIV status neutral. And this is kind of a new paradigm, a new sort of watch phrase that's being discussed in the community um, and really seems to be a positive intervention in terms of um, the prevention of transmission and the ending of the epidemic. So maybe you can talk for a second uh, just to close us out about what yeah. HIV status neutral means um, and what does this new paradigm mean for our efforts to end the pandemic? 
Yeah. Yeah. Status neutral. So essentially what it's saying is all people, regardless of their HIV status, are going to be treated the same way from the start, positive or negative. Right. So we're going to test everybody for HIV. One of those things I was saying, we need to increase screening. And regardless of the results, we get them either into the HIV prevention path or the HIV treatment path. Um, and maybe their HIV prevention path is not the same, you know, maybe they don't get prep that way, but there may be other ways, behavioral ways, right? And it's the whole idea is to really support everyone's health, regardless of whether they're positive or negative. Um, I think what's so great about it is we're increasing that education and knowledge and people are talking about HIV more, it'll remove stigma, right? If we're talking about it and it's normalized, we're not seeing, oh, HIV positive or, you know, any of the things that, you know, people might kind of bristle at. Um, and it really focuses on that continuum of care where we're really getting people into treatment, keeping them in treatment, keeping their viral load down. And then for those who are negative, really getting them on that prevention side so that we're really working to end the HIV epidemic. And so I think it's a great new approach. I, I encourage people to, no matter what their practices, start to um, educate themselves on you know, what, what that looks like um, and how to talk to people regardless of their HIV status um, and, and maybe learning a little bit about um, HIV, studying it a little bit more, learning how to counsel people who might be positive, um, but then we treat everybody the same. And I, you know, I think that that's something we try to do in healthcare, but we know it definitely isn't happening. And so we we can do that ourselves, right? It just takes one person in a clinic, um, in an organization to start a movement where, um, you know, we can really start to see that everyone is treated the same and it doesn't matter. And we're going to put them in either HIV prevention or HIV treatment. And that's normal. The more we normalize it, I think the, the better off we're going to do as a whole. And so I think it's a really great thing. I'm really excited about it. I love teaching and educating. Um, so it, it fits right in my wheelhouse <laughs> for sure, yeah. uh, HIV education. Yeah. Great. Dr. Floyd, thank you for coming on here to the Academy Exchange to talk about HIV prevention today. Some really, really important messages. And I just thank you again. Thank you so much for having me. It was my pleasure.